You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The young man rose. He mesmerized the crowd. There were cheers from the back of the hall to the front. They had never heard anything like this. The middle-aged man rose. Soak him, they said. Give him a soaking. They did. And he fired back and gave as good as he got. The old man rose. There were a few cheers, but anyone in the hall could hear distinctly more jeers. He shouted. He declaimed. It was hard to hear. And they had never said that about him before. Two, three thousand resurrections. I shall not doubt that my soul has power to clothe itself with a body suited to its new existence when this earthly frame has crumbled into dust. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed, during the 1924 Democratic National Convention in New York, the one that's going to go 103 exhausting ballots with both major candidates giving up. In the middle of this, when William Jennings Bryan gets up to speak, what you thought of it as a a delegate at that moment depended on your perspective. This is a much older man than the one that got his party's nomination in 96. For some, they were seeing the best speaker in the world, the strongest candidate, the man denied, the young one-term congressman who 28 years before turned a speech into a national crusade. For those supporters, they'll never forget Chicago, the triumph of the silver rights, of the concept of silver money. They'd never concede that anything was wrong about old 96. And for those fans, the Bryanites, William Jennings Bryan would always be young in message, if not in appearance. But in 1924, that was less and less of the Democratic Party. Said a biography of Bryan, he was no longer a young man, although a rugged vigor still upheld him and his ardor burned incessantly, as in the very beginning. The cares and toil of years had taken their tolls. He was repeatedly interrupted, not by cheers, but by the bitterest of abuse. He searched for something that could unite his party in a time of rancor. He searched for a message that could heal the blisters. He searched for a way to cut the noise down alone. When he finally found a way to at least stop the jeering. Gentlemen, this may be the last convention of my party in which I shall be a delegate. Cheers came immediately. The whole hall cheered on that one, obviously. Those who wanted him to be the party star cheered, and those who wanted this to be his last meeting cheered as well. And then he quickly corrected with this. But it might not be my last. Even for some of the critics, they had to admit it was a pretty good play. This was a different William Jennings Bryan. He was at a different place now, more associated with the South. He lived in a spectacular house in Florida, which he had built in the teens. He had always received his support from the South, but was considered a man of the prairie in Nebraska. But always, every time you think of Bryan, you've got to think that in um, all of those presidential contests where he's up, For the presidency, he's winning a solid South. He had aggressively lent his voice to the booming Florida real estate market, which many people from all the country were starting to invest in. And as he's speaking, 
Florida is still a great investment. People are seeing the value of the land they buy there go up and up and up. And there's another relevant for the great commoner, as Brian is known, the man who can speak for the masses of people instead of the rich, the elite. Why would he be talking about real estate investment? Well, Florida was seen as a kind of commoner's investment at the time. It's going to fall like a house of cards, unbelievable, and a prophecy of the coming Wall Street crash, but not crash hasn't happened yet. So the chairman, Thomas J. Wall, says, The gentleman from Florida, Mr. Bryan, asks unanimous consent that he be permitted to explain his vote. Is there objection? And cries are heard of, I object, I object. Walsh replies, the chair hears none. Mr. Bryan will come to the platform. And as the New York Times describes it, cheers and applause mingled with hisses and boos. Mr. Chairman, members of the convention, I greatly appreciate the privilege you have accorded me. And I hope when I am through, you will feel that I have improved the time for the benefit of the Democratic Party. I have only one desire, and that is that we should win the next election. I do not claim any advantage over anyone else. I am one in 1,098 delegates, and one in 12 of the Democrats of Florida, and I ask no one to accept my opinion on my authority. Brian is saying, <laughs> um, when Brian says that he's just one of 1,098 delegates, it's hard to believe that people believe him when he says he doesn't expect any more authority than them. He'll also go on for three full newspaper columns of speech. He's He really comes on in 1924 as an apologist for the region of the South. I remind you that the South furnished as many soldiers for the late war as it furnished to the Confederacy. I remind you that the South furnished more money to do our part in the World War than it furnished to the Confederacy. A voice in the audience shouts at Brian, Why shouldn't it? It is time that we should hush forever the voice that excludes the South from full participation in our party's welfare and the welfare of our nation. The man who says that the North will not vote for a Southern man libels the North. What this nation wants is a man whose heart beats in sympathy with the common people. And we don't care where he was born or where he lives. He's not only an apologist of the South, however, he also presents that the convention should be progressive. But what he considers progressive is the prohibition of alcohol. Here it is. I think it's necessary also that our candidate will be a man whose record on the liquor question is such that every mother will know that every home will be protected. As Brian's speaking... A delegate from New Jersey rises. Mr. Chairman, point of order. Charles F.X. O'Brien from New Jersey says, The man has exceeded his time. Mr. Chairman, you said that as soon as Mr. Bryan answered the question of the other representative or delegate from New Jersey, you could continue the regular order of business. He has done that now. Bryan interrupts. I think the audience will not object to anything else I am going to say. I don't think he's got any right to be there at all, someone shouts. He's out of order. He's being paid $1,000 a minute. These are the kind of things people are shouting at the chairman about Brian. My time is merely up. I have some principles to present to you, and I want you to hiss and scoff at my principles, if you dare. That's followed by hissing and scoffing. The world looks to us. In Russia, they have a class government. In Great Britain, they have a laboring man for premier. In France, socialism is in control, and it threatens Germany and Italy. That is the condition of the old world. I believe it has been brought about largely by the concentration of wealth that has enriched a few and has made homeless the many. When Lloyd George made his fight to tax the landlords, he used a sentence more powerful, Mr. Chairman, I think, than any other sentence that has been used in an argument in a thousand years. He said, Why make ten thousand owners of the soil and the rest trespassers in the land of their birth? Chairman finally says, Your time is up. These men of wealth ought to know, and the Democratic Party ought to tell them, your time is up. That it is better to leave good government to their children than have large fortunes. A voice says, stop speaking. I thank you for your attention. There's applauses and there's boos. Something else related to this, too. 
and related to the South. Brian was not exactly making a heroic speech as he gets up in New York. Not rich versus poor, not oppressed versus the oppressors, easy straw mans to attack, no cross of gold this time. The party had proposed a resolution condemning the most hateful secret organization in America, one that was growing, unfortunately, at this time, the Ku Klux Klan, and Brian was suggesting a no vote to condemning it. Not for any love to the Klan. There's no evidence. Brian doesn't express any support for this organization in his own voice during his political lifetime. Yes, there are people that will, groups, particularly local organizations, that will adhere to him and saying he was a great supporter, particularly after his death. He always spoke out against bigotry, particularly that bigotry against Catholics and against Jews. You could count on Brian. But when it comes to the actual voicing of the name of an organization in the Democratic Party convention, Brian says we should be against a resolution naming any specific group. It's not what a national party does. It will split this party, and it will distract us. For New Yorkers in the crowd, especially the supporters of Al Smith, a Catholic governor now who wants to be president, Brian's speech was not cross of gold. It was more of the same, taking no stand at all. But it's also a number of delegates from Georgia and Alabama who were opposed to the Klan. One thinks of Oscar Underwood, a Democrat in a southern state opposed to the, to the Klan, getting all of Alabama's votes continuously in this election, 1924. But for Brian... It's unfortunate that we should have any organization built on prejudice against any group, but the question is how to deal with the situation. I've never been converted to the doctrine of fighting the devil with fire. He predicts this organization, which has taken the country by storm, particularly after the movie that comes out, Birth of a Nation, it will be as temporary as the American Protective Association, a pro-tariff group. For Rabbi Stephen Weiss, this is the moment. This great voice could have ended it. The Klan could have been stifled had Brian been true to his medal. Instead, Brian makes his speech, and the anti-Klan resolution would fail by one vote in this 1924 Democratic convention. You hear a lot about this convention. There's a lot of memes going on on the internet about it. And what people don't realize uh, is how close it came to actually being the only major party of the two to condemn the Klan. Now, it's unfair to say it's Brian's one vote that makes it fail, right? Because when something fails by one vote, everybody in that hall could be said that voted against it could be said, said to be the no vote. It's also true that the GOP convention in Cleveland in 1924 would fail to even have a vote on it. This is only one of the issues that Brian would get caught up in that didn't have the clear clarion call of silver and gold. Indeed, each time he ran, 1896, 1900, 1908, he said he was going to do better. In fact, the exact opposite happened. Each time he lost worse than the first. We hear a lot about the story of his tremendous cross of gold speech in 1896, the silver issue, a little bit of the anti-imperialist campaign of 1900. Hear about that in history. But this is a politician that had a long time in politics. He'd be a factor in party conventions for four decades. He'd be a candidate three times. And a chance at the nod, some chance, at least five times. The first time he runs in 1896, he calls it the first battle. It was a battle in which he campaigns by train in several states. He writes a book after it. I own an original first edition of it. He shows how a few votes in a a few states would have changed that outcome. He engages in a little, uh, no, it's nothing like uh, Stop the Steal or anything like that, but he engages in a little bit of wistful um, thinking about if a few votes had been moved around in different electoral college combinations, could have won. And it's, it's not far from the truth. You know, Brian is very competitive against McKinley. The second time around in 1900, there's a new weapon now that the GOP party has running Theodore Roosevelt for vice president. Brian can go out there and take the stumps and take the country by storm and make his speeches, but so can Roosevelt. Brian calls it the second battle. And he writes a book, again, the second battle, though it's harder after a convincing rematch with McKinley winning even more to show that Brian clearly would have won this time with a few changes. 
Per Michael Cazins, a godly hero, the life of William Jennings Bryan, his supporters just don't take that 1900 defeat well. And he's losing in 1896 and 1900 to the same guy. And for the supporters who this just wasn't just a candidate that they supported in old 96, this was a crusade. We were going to change the way the country was structured. We were going to change its coinage system and how money was distributed throughout the land. Yeah, they don't take these losses well. The returns drove many of Brian's followers to despair. And after his first defeat, they had paused only briefly before resuming their praise for his sincerity, his courage, and his clear desire to resume the battle. But now their letters were filled with the metaphors of hopelessness. A college president from Ohio worried that it might take bloody revolution to extricate Americans from the slavery into which they have all drifted. A Democrat from Nebraska compared the losing candidate to Christ, beset by the wealthy and the aristocrats. Peter Eckelt, governor of Illinois, called the result in 1900 a crime. Of course, Eckelt might be forgetting that initially when Brian ran, his reaction was something akin to, who is this guy? One Episcopal rector in New Jersey, a Brian supporter, just told him it was because he was so pure that he lost. While others quoted James Russell Lowell in their letters to Brian and in their letters to newspapers from one of his anti-slavery poems to discuss Brian's quest for the presidency. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. A reporter describes this about Brian on election night. So far as his outward expression went, one writer recalled, there was nothing to indicate that he had just for the second time lost the highest office in the world. He's not the first writer to notice this generally about Brian. Doesn't seem to be winning offices or elections, but he does okay in the candidate business. His second book, Just a Collection of Speeches, didn't sell as well as the first battle, but sells some copies. And he's got his newspaper, The Commoner, which goes all around the country. And he is a sought-after public speaker. He wasn't going to get the next nomination, though, no matter how many letters with poems that they wrote. And it's possible Brian knew it. He'd shift the causes, perhaps continue to publish that Commoner newspaper in Lincoln, Nebraska. He'd be a local star in that state. Brothers getting involved, his brother's a cigar salesman. He'll get involved in politics, eventually become governor of Nebraska. He still makes a speech, one that's going to impress a young reporter named H.L. Mencken, who didn't expect to be impressed. When he arrives in St. Louis, it's pretty well known he was not to get the nomination. They were more worried about could he start some trouble. Because conservatives in the Democratic Party take it over and say, You've lost twice with Brian, he doesn't have much of a shot. Here's the Times. William Jennings Bryan made one desperate effort in the convention today in St. Louis to bolster up his lost cause and met with ignominious defeat, the delegates voting down his attempt to overthrow the report on the Committee of Credentials by a vote of 647 to 299. Instead of Bryan, the convention nominates Judge Alton Parker, head of the Chief Court of Appeals in New York State. Really an ally to Governor David Hill, a friend to former President Grover Cleveland, part of the conservative established, the Eastern establishment. Not much of a stumper, that's for sure. He's up against now President Theodore Roosevelt and probably one of the biggest mishmatches in American presidential history. They pick for Vice President Henry G. Davis, who owns several mines in West Virginia. They hope he will donate a lot of money to the campaign and fund it. Later, reporters and actually some of the GOP interested in finding this out find that other than his normal local Democratic Party dues, Davis doesn't contribute any. And so there's a cartoon in newspapers that appears that shows a carriage with Davis and Alton Parker wrecked with Theodore Roosevelt running away with the prize. And in the distance, Brian is sitting on his hands watching with a big smile. That's 1904, and now when you get to 1908, Brian has 
what Parker's argument was. Brian now says, well, you tried running a conservative Democrat, a kind of me too, a these days we might say a Dino or something like that. You got, you went up against Roosevelt. He stole the progressive issues and he wins. So obviously, you know, we came closer both the runs that we made. And all of this, there is another candidate, Johnson of Minnesota. He's just not able to coalesce enough support. And the Bryanites control the party in um, in the early contest, control the convention in Denver. Brian's nominated again in 1908. This time it's up again, William Howard Taft, Roosevelt's chosen candidate, Roosevelt's had two terms. His administration's considered largely successful. One of the things that Taft can show is that he was involved in controlling the situation in the Philippines as military governor. The tariff is the major issue. They actually, the Democratic Party insists that Bryan not run this time on silver coinage, which is an issue that's now controversial. It goes from something that's just pretty popular economic theory to something that's extremely controversial after McKinley has two terms and the economy improves during his terms. you got to consider the situation of the Democratic Party right now because they had this phenome in 1896. You've got somebody that got you six and a half million votes, more than you ever got before. 47% of the vote, not enough to win. Republicans just get their voter base out more and get seven million votes in sweep. 1900, he gets 46%, really just 1% shy of the previous result. When you get to 1908, though, he's now at 43%. And what do you do as a Democratic Party looking at this? Because you've had this change in the party to new sets of issues that you wouldn't have heard Grover Cleveland talking about. And using a forceful rhetoric not used in politics, not the normal rules, and physically stumping, highly unusual for the time. What do you do now, though? Because it's not working and seems to be diminishing returns. And this is what they face in the next convention they're going to have in 1912. I mean, Brian's not technically a candidate, but he's always present and he's looming and he's waiting for some kind of deadlock. You've got Champ Clark. Be my little baby and you've got uh, Woodrow Wilson, the governor of New Jersey, where there's a big campaign for him. Honey, keep a buzzin', please. I've got a dozen cousin bees, but I want you to be my baby bumblebee. There's also something new going on. In the other party, the Republicans, Theodore Roosevelt has already bolted, the former president. So they're running Taft in the Republican Party, and then there's a progressive bull moves party. Now, within the Democratic Party, this means two things. One, Democrats feel like they have a really good chance now. And then secondly, what happened to Roosevelt, they think probably can happen to Bryant. Bryant's politics are closer to what he's talking about in the Bull Moose Convention. Why don't you just join him? So that's an argument for many as we get to the 1912 convention. Democratic delegates shouting at him when he gets up to talk and make a motion like, go with Roosevelt. Why don't you just go with Roosevelt? Which is crazy because I can think of few people Roosevelt hated more than this man, but we'll put that aside. The convention gets very upset because it looks like this is Champ Clark, it's really uh, Bo Champ Clark, the Speaker of the House of Representatives from Missouri, is a very strong candidate for president in 1912. And it looks like he'll win. He's got the support of Tammany, and he's got some support in the South and West. Brian puts his foot down. He doesn't want any part of him because he made a deal with Tammany. Brian does not like Tammany. Tammany is Eastern. Tammany is hard money. It's collusion with finance. It's everything Brian's against. Just when the convention is about to put candidates in the nomination for president, Brian gets on the floor and offers a resolution which declared in substance that the money powers represented by J.P. Morgan Thomas F. Ryan and August Belmont, these are big financiers, 
was engaged in a conspiracy to purchase the presidential nomination of this convention. Is that what you want? He says, so it's really a conspiracy theory that he's floating. Now, it's not entirely a conspiracy because guess who is at this convention? Morgan, Ryan, Belmont. Though I don't believe all of them are there at the time of his speech. Bryant's resolution calls on the convention to expel these three people who are delegates and declare itself opposed to the nomination of any candidate or representative of or under obligation to the Morgan Ryan Bellman interests. Okay, well, you're talking about New York and Virginia, both of who at the current time are backing Champ Clark. Here's the New York Times. Pandemonium does not describe the scene that followed this move on the part of the peerless leader. The New York delegates were not in the hall to defend Belmont, but Virginia's delegate came howling to Ryan's defense. Ryan of Virginia just, he, he volunteers, I'll just leave, this is fine. No, the Virginia delegates don't want him to. Brian finally took the floor again, but could be scarcely heard above the din. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, he shouted. And if it is necessary to cut off Morgan and Ryan and Belmont, then cut them off. Well, just hearing this resolution, you know, gets him what he wants. He tells a reporter, I am much pleased. The atmosphere is cleared now. A number of reactionary candidates are retired from the race by that vote on my resolution. Soak him. Soak him. The crowd shouts to one delegate when he gets up to speak against Brian. Soak him. I plan to. Cheers. Rule or ruin is what the delegate speaks about. Brian. He wants to rule the party or he wants to ruin it. How long will we take this? There'll be a boom for Wilson. He'll surpass Clark and eventually get the nomination. So it's not Brian that gets nominated, but Clark doesn't get nominated either. For the moment, that's good enough for Brian. And Brian's prize in the new Wilson administration will be his first and only federal office that he'll get, which is Secretary of State. Brian, of course, has no foreign policy experience. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So a party getting tired of its candidate um, that has nothing to do with the issues of today, right? Well, that is what we're going to see in the period leading up to 2024. So I thought it's relevant to bring up William Jennings Bryant. They are two different individuals, Donald Trump and William Jennings Bryant. This comparison has actually been made by um, Steve Bannon, of all people. I'm not making that comparison of the people, uh, necessarily. There are some, you know, compare and contrast you could do. For instance, the use of crowds, the use of rallies. I mean, the politics behind either one. What 
either one of these people would get with full power and to do what they want would be completely different things. I mean that that's where I think that they're they're absolutely different. You know, if 80% of what Brian's going to want to do is going to be considered by almost any member of the GOP today, but including Trump mostly, as, uh, you know, they would attack it as they, they would now as a socialism. You know, um, what he wanted to do essentially was inflate the money supply. So, so Brian, in some essence, is a pro-inflation candidate. He's an anti-tariff. Okay, so all of this kind of trade warring with China and things like that. See, that's not William Jennings Bryan. So on issues, these guys are completely separate. Um, But there is a similarity that both find themselves in a party that are now want to maybe move on to other candidates. And maybe that'll happen in 2024 or maybe it will have to wait till 2028, but you see a GOP now ready to move to other candidates. Well, this is exactly even more so what the Democratic Party was facing as you start to get into the 20s, you know. Think about it this way, because this is really the time period exactly works 100 years ago. So if we're in 2024, right, and you're talking about running Clinton or Bob Dole, well, obviously, Mr. Dole has passed away, but you get my drift. You're running a figure from so long ago. And maybe even if he wasn't running, the people are starting to question why he even has influence in the party. Can we even address some of the issues? Like, is some of what you're saying just kind of magic talk that gets people inspired, but there's no way to implement these issues? And these are all questions that are raised at the time by a national party that has a lot of different types of people in it and is finding its own voice. It's no longer just the kind of inherited Confederate uh, party, not the Buchanan party anymore. You've got um, new voices of which Brian is one. When the 1920 Democratic Convention opens in San Francisco, there is a new device, a microphone and a loudspeaker that meant that calm speakers like Carter Glass of Virginia could be heard just as loud as William Jennings Bryan. Bryan gets up to the podium, takes the microphone, shoves it aside. I don't need this. He's an old 19th century speaker and he has the lungs. His party would hear him from one side of the hall to the other. And hear him they did, but it was a sign that his party was rapidly moving past him. The other speakers used that microphone. Everyone thought the president was so clever when he made one of his chief rivals Secretary of State. That's happened several times before, you know, not just in 2009, right? When Obama did this with Hillary Clinton or in uh, 1861 when Lincoln did it with Seward. Woodrow Wilson became president in 1913. Brian was a power in the party with his own fans, lots of newspaper attention, anything he said. And so Wilson kind of wants to give him the ambassador to the court of St. James, the ambassador to the UK. This is a very prestigious of the whole diplomatic court at the time we're talking about, 1913. That's the, that's the jewel. Um, that's, but it's also a place where, I mean, you could do a little trouble there. You could, but it's a high prestige. You want to put a high prestige person, a name, and Brian fits that bill. So that's initially what they're thinking. Wilson's advisor, Colonel House of Texas, knows Brian, and he's a supporter of the idea. The other supportive idea was Peter Dunn, a journalist who had a column called Mr. Dooley. He would talk about politics from the viewpoint of an average, everyday Irishman. And he said of Brian, with a brick in his hand, he's as good as a rifleman. I'd rather have him close to my bosom than on my back. Campaign manager William McCombs hated the idea of putting Brian into the Wilson administration. He felt that Brian had done everything he could to get that nomination himself. He warned Wilson about him. Brian regards himself as the only American to be president. You were in his way. I beg of you. Wilson listened to McCombs, but disagrees. 
The campaign was over and it was time to govern, and governing means compromise. And to do that, he needed a strong, united party. And Wilson revealed that his intentions were partially political when he said to McCombs, the Bryant party wing would become an administration auxiliary. And at first it works. On Mexico and on the Caribbean, big issues to confront the administration early. Bryant and Wilson are working side by side. But things change as Germany and Britain and France go to war. Eventually, like many in the south and west of the country, Bryant saw the British as disrupting American shipping just as much as the Germans were and wanted a parallel, truly neutral policy that treated the British as harshly as we might treat the Germans. He resisted any loans to belligerent UK or Germany, saying that the money was helping to cause the conflict itself. So at a cabinet meeting, he said that some members of the cabinet were not so neutral as they pretended to be. Wilson reprimanded him. You are not warranted, Mr. Bryan, in making such an assertion. Bryan was probably right. German U-boats were targeting British ships, and sometimes Americans were on those ships, and sometimes they accidentally or otherwise targeted American ships and sunk them. Sometimes, as in the most famous example of the Lusitania, it would take years to find out that there were, that there were munitions on these passenger ships. And the Germans considered them proper targets. The British, and certainly the Americans, did not. 124 Americans die, and pressure was strong in the country. For reaction, Bryan still wanted a conference and wrote a letter to the Germans as Secretary of State that said they respected their common cultures but needed to clear the misunderstandings. Wilson disagreed and issued a stronger letter himself. He sent a note saying American rights would be respected. The sinking had been on an illegal action, and he demanded Germany cease unrestricted submarine warfare against unarmed merchant men. He then does take the idea up of doing a peace conference or trying to put one together, but he sends Colonel House instead of William Jennings Bryan. There is a talk about a letter that Bryan wanted to send to the Austrian government that Wilson edited too much. On June 9th, 1915, William Jennings Bryan had had enough. He resigns, and he says to Wilson, Colonel House has been the Secretary of State. I have never had your full confidence. Not only those lost elections, but now Bryan's real failure at his first and only federal office is bringing him down a peg. There was disappointment not only from politicians, not only from members of the Wilson cabinet, Wilson himself, but newspapers, unspeakable treachery said the New York World, which at that time was the big Democratic newspaper. Unspeakable treachery. Brian's own family hated leaving Washington, and many of his supporters were disappointed that he just left the government. He'd kind of left the fight, the center of power. But now Brian was free to speak his mind, and that was dangerous. As 1915 and 1916 continues, there'd be another election year, and there was some disappointment in progressive Democratic ranks about the militarism of Wilson's letters and his actions. There's some talk of a challenge in 1916. People look to Bryan. In the end, Bryan doesn't take the bait. In fact, he ended up campaigning pretty forcefully for Wilson. When the war is declared, Bryan is fully supported. I tender my services and roll me as a private wherever needed. Wilson did not take Bryan up on the offer to have a 57-year-old private in the Army. However, and after the war, there was talk of a 1920 nomination for Bryan. Bryan is a dry. He's for prohibition. Party has a strong, wet faction. Anti-prohibition of alcohol, particularly New York, New Jersey. In New Jersey, Governor Edwards said that he wanted to make New Jersey as wet as the Atlantic Ocean. It's not the entire party because Bryan is on the other side of this issue in every way, and in 1920 pushed as hard as any Democrat could. To even get to San Francisco, where the convention was in 1920, he had to run for a seat against Senator Hitchcock in Nebraska. Bryan wins, but Hitchcock warned that they were sending troublemakers to the convention, and Bryan does try to steer, stir things up a bit. And he stands up on the podium and makes a strong defense of prohibition. 
in an increasingly wet party. He pointed out the dangers from the eastern states and said, are you ashamed of what your party did? Most states with Democratic governors ratified prohibition. Unfortunately, the galleries happened to be passionately interested on the other side, the wet side of the argument. He was hissed and booed again and again. When an eastern delegate shouted, I voted for you in the past. Yes, Brian said, and I'm sorry if you thought you elected somebody with no values at all, or something like that. Once the chorus of boos became so loud, Senator Thomas J. Walsh, the chairman of the convention, threatened to have it cleared. That kept the galleries fairly quiet, and Mr. Bryan spoke. This party's struggling with what to do about this person, knowing full well you can beat them once in a while, right? You can put up a Parker, but you're going to have the wrath of his supporters either. They're going to sit on their hands or go to the other side. I know for some that uh, they like that image because if you think about the 1896 image, you like that image of a crusader. I like talking about him. I think, you know, it was a force that was needed in American politics. We do need to talk about this period again where people started, I'll use the modern parlance, checking the receipts, say, and some of this doesn't add up. Are you really, you know, advocating something or are you just whooping people up? 1925 will be the last year of his life. That will be dominated by the Scopes Monkey Trial in which he takes on another controversial point. And Brian, this great populist candidate. So a lot of people who are Democrats now might associate themselves with William Jennings Bryan. And there's probably a lot of reasons, at least in domestic policy that you could, and economic policy that you could do that. But he's also anti-evolution or at least anti teaching of evolution. Though I have to say, reading some of his writings on it, including a final speech, and he's very much against the theory of evolution and its teaching as anything more than, say, something done in a science lab. He'll die in 1925, right after his embarrassing performance in the Scopes Monkey trial. But you can't say he didn't have any lasting influence. The right of the government to regulate the railroad has been established in both state and federal courts. I mean, I'll give you a couple of issues that Brian wanted. A money supply that's not simply based on the amount of gold reserves that the federal government has. More free trade, lower tariffs, government ownership of utility, or at least regulation thereof. Increased government regulation and perhaps ownership of railroads. The railroad is a quasi-public corporation. As such, it exercises the sovereign right of eminent domain, and it cannot escape from this public character. What we need is first to ascertain the value of the railroads, measured by the cost of reproduction, and second, to prevent for the future issues of fictitious capital and watered stock. When we have put railroad business upon an honest basis, we can proceed with rate reductions without, however, preventing a fair and just return upon the capital invested. States should not be deprived of the power which they now have to protect their people against railroad abuses. Congress does not need any additional power. It has more power now than it has exercised. All of these things are going to become part of American policy. They're going to be reflected sometimes in Wilson's programs, but also in the coming New Deal. And Truman and FDR. Truman's somebody that's inspired by William Jennings Bryan in many ways. FDR, thinks, has some suspicion of him because of the side of the Democratic Party that he comes from, and he's also part of the Wilson government, and he's the 1920 vice presidential candidate, so he doesn't like anybody who's kind of a troublemaker in the party at that time. But there's no doubt that when you're looking at the New Deal, there's echoes of 96 in that complicated figure because some of what is, sounds crazy at his time is going to get enacted. But uh, he won't live to see it in some cases. Some of his statements are so vague that you must question whether he actually advocated a specific policy or just a vague concept. You can't deny that there's been influence there. But this, this party was struggling with what to do with this figure. You know, it's only in 1928 that they're able to have a really clean convention and nominate, nominate Al Smith. Maybe the biggest historical contribution that William Jennings Bryan ended up making 
I guess, in addition to crossing the Rubicon in American presidential politics, breaking with the gold standard, is that his actions led to the nomination and election of, of Woodrow Wilson. No Brian, probably no Woodrow Wilson. Now, Woodrow Wilson isn't the most popular guy these days, but in terms of historical influence, probably don't need him. Because part of Wilson's appeal is that he was progressive enough, uh, this Princeton University president, progressive enough to appeal enough to the Bryanites, at least as a compromise candidate. There's one other part of this story, and that's to talk about Ruth Bryan, his daughter. Really, there should be books written about her as a fascinating woman. She makes a movie, an early movie in Hollywood. She gets involved in the movie business. And since she's two years old, her father has been a factor in politics, first as a member of the Nebraska legislature. When she's age five, she lives in Washington, D.C., when her father was a congressman. Her mother, her mother, Mary Bard, was a lawyer who had been admitted to the bar, and as Owen, Ruth Brian Owen, would admit, I wanted to emulate her. During the tariff debates of the 1890s, Ruth's frequent appearances led members to name her the sweetheart of the house. The sweetheart of the house would end up down the road getting elected to Congress in her own right. year after her father's death. She runs for the House of Representatives in a district along Florida's Atlantic coast. This is a state that refused to ratify the 19th Amendment. Ruth Bryan Owen is running. She loses just by 800 votes. It's very close. People comment on this. And then she runs again in 1928. It's noted that while she's a candidate, there's a Um, a devastating hurricane that goes through Miami in 1927. And she's both working as a relief worker and is running for Congress. That's noticed. She wins the Democratic primary, which in Florida is the equivalent of, at that time, of winning the election. She is her father's child, Ruth Brian Owen. She has tremendous energy. She has one of the largest geographic districts because the way that it's drawn, it's along the Florida coast, stretches more than 500 miles from Jacksonville to Key West. She cruises the coastline in a green Ford coupe that's called the Spirit of Florida, logging more than 10,000 miles to give 500 stump speeches. Even though Al Smith is defeated in Florida by 17 points, she wins her election. And she famously says, there, I'm the first Brian who ran for anything and got it. There's a challenge to her election immediately, and the reason is because she had been married and moved to England. Now, this would not happen with a man, so this is not just a citizenship issue, but is a gender issue. Here's how it works. The 1922 Cable Act allowed women married to foreign men to petition for repatriation upon their return to the United States. This did not allow for the seven-year citizenship required by the Constitution to run for U.S. representative. Owen speaks in front of the House now and offers a defense of her eligibility before the House Elections Committee. She exposed the deficiencies of the cable, how it's unfair to women versus men who leave the country and never lose their citizenship. And eventually there's an amendment made to that law. When it comes time for her to run re-election in 1930, she's not even opposed. She's enormously popular. She sets up a kind of a modern office, and she maintains a resident secretary, Walter Buckingham, who remains in Florida and keeps abreast of local events. This isn't common. Now it's very common for congressional staff to have home offices and D.C. offices. She kind of sets up this system. She swiftly establishes herself as fiercely loyal to the needs of her Florida constituents. She secures more than $4 million in federal funding to combat the Mediterranean fruit fly, which threatened Florida's citrus crop. She's also the first to advocate for the Everglades, 
being a federal national park. But there are two things that she does that are directly opposed to her father. And one is that she votes for the Smoot-Hawley tariff of 1927. She votes yes. Raises duties on imports. Owen insists she's only following the wishes of the voters in her district to vote no when I know without a doubt that my constituents want me to say yes would be a form of political treason. And then finally, she's defeated in election because of the issue of wet first dry. She's her father's child on this. She's prohibitionist. But when she's defeated in election on this issue and replaced by a wet candidate, a wet congressman, she goes back during a lame duck session. And there's a vote to repeal the 18th Amendment. She votes yes. That's what her constituents wanted. Now, one can only imagine how different that is from her father's view of the 1920 convention. Ruth Bryan Owens is not done yet. She's a good friend to Franklin Roosevelt and a frequent visitor at the White House. And she will be appointed ambassador to Denmark. And so William Denning Bryan's daughter is the first woman to head up an ambassador's office, an ambassador's delegation. During her time in Denmark, she marries a Danish captain of the King's Guard named Borgerod. The two are married under the watch of President Franklin Roosevelt at Hyde Park. She dies in 1954. This will be the end of the actual, any actual Brian in politics. And in 1992, she's inducted to the Florida Woman's Hall of Fame. We're glad that we can speak about someone that we're probably not aware of, right? Dad gets all the attention. And thus goes the Brian influence in American politics really there. Again, I think it's highly relevant, a polarizing, energizing figure, both energizing and polarizing at the same time, and a party facing their choice of what they want to do with it, and not always in their own control. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Uh, if you like us, you know, write a review, subscribe. We do have a Patreon, and thanks for listening.